Hello, everybody, and welcome to another very special Easter, because it is still Easter, episode of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. Join us to go more deeply into this great adventure at ilovemyfamily.us. There you will find an awesome Live It Gathering Guide, which is just such a blessing to so many people in this area and beyond, um, just to help People come together, families come together to talk and to pray. It's based upon the um, upcoming Sunday readings and just has a lot of tools there that will really enhance relational relationships. <laughs> Are there other kinds of relationships? I just thought I'd throw that in there because I blanked after relational, so why not just go with the relationships? Those are the best kind of relationships, those relational ones. Well, anyways, we're... Uh, <laughs> we are raw yeah, tonight. We are, we are. In a very uh, short moment, we're going to get to Father Mike Dandran talking about courage and civil disobedience. He gives us a phenomenal framework to understand how are we as Catholics to look at the political, social world around us? How are we to respond to things that are both uh, just and to things that are unjust? What, what are the um, criteria, if you will, to consider those things? And then what followed was great conversation. We had an awesome full room full of people at GMC of Perrysburg. Thank you, Connie and Rich Cronin, for hosting this. It's the largest group we ever had. A full room full of people? We're, we are really on <laughs> eloquence, yes. sir passing here uh you know and we're looking forward to the next one the next one is going to be may 19th with so we're already getting into the commercials um may 19th of next month um father mark davis is going to be speaking on the theme of experiencing the extraordinary in the ordinary he's affectionately referred to as the third tallest magician Magician. on the planet but actually i've already promoted him because i think the second tallest died god rest his soul so now father mark is the second tallest magician on the planet and he'll be into integrating the delight and joy of storytelling and magic into his theme again of experiencing the extraordinary in the ordinary and you're dying to add something aren't you well no just the link to you can go to register at massimpact.us forward slash b NB belief in beverage. So we're going. We want to showcase companies um, run by Catholic leaders. These are folks who are very committed to professional excellence and building the kingdom. We are so grateful for them. You can find them at MassImpact.us forward slash Kingdom. And Stephanie and I are going to quickly read through them all in one payroll. Sherry Glenneman. Archbald Furniture Company, Pat and Patty McNamara. Becoming Gift, Andrew Reinhardt. Carpets by Otto, Otto and D. Wyke. Carruth Studio, Terry Langenderfer. Cronin Auto Family, Rich and Connie Cronin. Interstate Commercial Glass, Walter Erickson. Isabel Financial Services, Dennis Isabel. MFC Products, Miller Fastener and Components, Paul Miller. McCartney Coaching, Mike McCartney. Rob Holer Realty, Rob Holer. Resourcement, Jeff Barefoot. Quarry Hawk Medical, William Noltner. Signature Associates, Megan Malcheski. SJS Investment Services, Kevin Kelly. Turning Points Chiropractic, Doctors Jeff and Rachel Elmore. And if I could just add quickly, they are uh, running a special this May. So coming up where if you bring in a... Um, 
a donation for Heartbeat. It can be diapers or mm. any sort of baby item, but particularly diapers to be donated. Mm. They will waive the um, new patient fee. So Turning Point Chiropractic, again, during the month of May, bring in diapers to be given to Heartbeats, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal organization. Um, and the Elmores will waive the new patient fee. And find their contact information along with Westgate Insurance Agency with Stephen Malsheski, massimpact.us forward slash kingdom. So we just ask you to support them as they support us. Fabulous. And one final commercial. The most formidable fighting force on this planet is not what you may think. It's parents, grandparents, and godparents united in blessing their children. Not simply including them in our prayers, certainly important. Uh, Certainly novenas, that's power prayer, right? Masses, all of that is absolutely significant. But on a daily basis, embracing our call, our stewardship to be God's presence to them and to actually bless them, to renounce the work of the enemy in their lives, the whispers and the lies, and to really pray for abundance of grace to flood them, fill them, forge them. We have a really powerful prayer card, and we like to see it throughout the world. We like to see parishes distribute them. You can help us do that. I'm glad you asked that question. How can we help? Glad you asked. Go to massimpact.us forward slash prayer card. Massimpact.us forward slash prayer card. And now, without further ado, we warmly welcome you to listen in to our last Belief in Beverages with Father Mike Danderan, Courage and Civil Disobedience. And a great discussion that followed. My name is Brett Hunterbrinker. This is my much, much, much better half. I definitely married way up in the world, Ellen. Uh, we've been married for almost 11 years. It'll be 11 years on April 30th. Uh, I want to welcome you to the Belief in Beverages Night. And we want a, a big thanks to Rich and Connie Cronin uh, for hosting us. This is just an awesome venue. Great sunshine pouring in. Uh, Speak to any of these gentlemen over here for cars, uh, services in the back. Just a little bit on Mass Impact. Um, We first got involved with Mass Impact eight years ago, maybe. Um, I'd say really within like the past four years, we've been pretty intentional about using the weekly live it guide that Greg and Stephanie have created with Mass Impact. And it's been a huge positive impact for our family. Um, We have five kids ranging from ages nine down to almost three. Um, And... Having this intentional time of prayer and conversation has been really great for our family. It's been really helpful for us. We do ours usually on Saturday mornings after uh, we've made some pancakes and our kids are involved with that because our kids sit still when they're eating food. And so it's really a great time for us. And they call us out when we forget to grab the iPad to pull it up on the app. And so I love it, and which is great. Uh, also on that is um, Ellen and I have prayerfully considered this. We are very careful on where we give our money to, and we are financial supporters of Mass Impact. And so we'll say something at the end of the night too, but if you are able to uh, partner with Mass Impact, and it truly is a partnership, I would say. It's not just a donation. It is a partnership. And we've definitely wreak the benefits of it in our own lives, in our marriage, and in our families. And so I encourage you to do that. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the night. So tonight's speaker is Father Michael Dandrian. He, um, we have a special affection for Father Michael. Uh, well, Father Mike, I can't call him Father Michael. <laughs> but So I first met Father Mike in 2006 when I was a freshman at BGSU, and he was the pastor at St. Thomas More University Parish. And just a quick shout out to Rob and Katie Holer, because they were down there at the same time um, as I was. And then Brett came down to St. Tom's to just be involved with student life or check out the girls, his choice. But um, so we met Father Mike then and he's had a huge part in our formation. Um, 
just as Catholics and as people. And then he also presided at our wedding. So we are real excited that he's here tonight. Um, Father Mike's the pastor at Holy Trinity in Assumption, and he is a former military chaplain with the Air National Guard. Um, So we're grateful that he's here tonight and he's made time to come here. And then he's here to speak tonight on the important theme of courage and civil disobedience. All right, because I understand that this is only on audio tape, not videotape, my Dr. Pepper is tasting really good this evening. (laughs) Come Holy Spirit, allow these spirits to illuminate your spirit. (laughs) All right. Well, it's good to be with you. I honestly, um, I'm pretty, if you're expecting something great, Lower your expectations. I've been a part of, I've not, I've not been a part, but I've attended a few of these in the past uh, semester. Um, Greg and Stephanie have brought out some high-level speakers from Hillsdale uh, the first semester, and they've just really impressive professors with great intellect and great depth of wisdom, and they offered some really solid stuff. They lowered the bar tonight, friends. So <laughs> I'm just a parish priest, okay? We are good citizens on earth, Right? so that we may be eternal citizens in heaven. And I want to frame our whole discussion on civil disobedience in that short little phrase. We are good citizens on earth so that we can be eternal citizens in heaven. All right? Um, I'm a, I like history, so I'm going to take, take us back a little bit in history. Um, I'm going to make four major points in this talk. Um, and each point is, is a cursory point. Each point probably could be a whole semester of study at a graduate level. But each point's necessary to kind of draw us to the conclusion of what is civil disobedience and how do we utilize it. Our first point's got to begin with a little bit of history, though. You know, in the 20th century, we've, we've, we, we have witnessed and it's been recorded more atrocities inflicted by legitimate authorized governments on the human family than any other recorded history, a century in our history. It's crazy if you look back to the 20th century. Uh, some of these atrocities are very common to us. We know the atrocity of the genocide of the Holocaust. Um, Germany, the Nazi regime, between the year uh, 1941 and 1945, the estimate in Germany alone, this is not counting Poland and the places they conquered, but 4 million to 7 million Jews, Catholics, people in protest to Nazism, were executed in concentration camps. 4 million to 7 million then you have the Russian Holocaust genocide going on as well. In Russia, between uh, 1932 and 1933, 2.8 million, to arrest them, uh, up to as many as 7.8 million Russians were killed by the Russian authorities. Ah, that's way back in World War II, Father. We don't have those problems now. Nope, 1975 to 1979, Cambodia. They had their own genocide as well. 1.3 million to 3 million Cambodians were killed, executed. Even more troubling for me is in 1994. Come on, 1994, we're advanced. We're, you know, ah, in Rwanda, 500 to 800,000 Tutsis were killed by their fellow citizens, the Hutu tribe, in 1994. That, that's a genocide worthy of reading because it's just perplexing. As are all these genocides, how is it 
that these cultures are filled with good people. Germany is a Christian nation. Iran is filled with Christians as well, Muslim predominantly, but Christians as well. How is it possible that these nations allow for these genocides to happen? They happen because they are corrupt governments. They happen because evil still exists in our world. And that evil is manifested in structures, organizations, governments that allow for this genocide to take place. The great expression is that why do these genocides exist? Because the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is what? For to do nothing, right? How many of you have seen the, um, the HBO series, Band of Brothers? Oh, yeah, fantastic series. Yeah. Um, there, there's an episode in there where the Allied forces came in, to, and they, they're um, liberating Germany at this point. They're making their way to, the, um, to Hitler's uh, his, um, eagle's nest. They come, upon, come across this beautiful Appalachian small mountain village. It is pristine. It's Beautiful. Streets are clean. Houses are well ordered. Beautiful. One of their concentration camps where they held Jews and enemies of the state. And even within that camp, they executed them. Just within walking distance of this pristine village was a camp of death. And in the movie, they demonstrate just kind of the, the strange dichotomy between the beauty and the civility of this city, this village, and the death of this concentration camp. And the Allied forces, one of the same counter the concentration camp, were, were obviously just terrified or just drawn back in a horror of the evil that existed. I mean, dead bodies lying uncared for, people starving. Um, and obviously they had to address this huge humanitarian concern and they had to enlist, or they didn't have to, but they chose to enlist the civilians, the citizens of that small village. They portrayed it as if these villages knew what was going on, but they turned a blind eye and they stayed in the comfort of their home and the beauty of their little Alp Alp Appalachian village while outside their city, evil, was being perpetrated upon God's holy children. It's a powerful scene. How can that happen? How can good people, Christian people, Catholics, people of goodwill, just simply good people, allow a government to perpetuate such evil? A confession. I listen to Joe Rogan. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, now listen, three years ago, that was a little scandalous because Rogan's language was really like, oh, Joe, stop it. But anymore, I mean, I, I just enjoy the people he interviews. And uh, so Joe Rogan, I actually listened to one of his interviews with uh, Dr. Robert Malone. Uh, maybe some of you have heard this. And, and he spoke about a, a, a thing called mass formation psychosis. Uh, he further interviewed Father Peter McClaw, or excuse me, Dr. Peter McClaw on the same issue, mass formation psychosis. Now, because it was a rather controversial um, 
subject matter, it was certainly uh, blocked and um, censored by some mainstream streaming sources. But essentially, mass formation psychosis is, is, a, is a science that has realized that in the area of psychology, a psycho psychosis is when somebody loses touch with reality. That's psychosis. Clinical diagnosis of somebody. A mass formation psychosis is where a large part of a society loses focus. They lose contact with reality. And they choose to focus on a leader, regardless of data, regardless of a human experience, to follow a narrative of a leader. Mass formation psychosis bases itself on what Plato will call or describe in the Republic as a noble lie. A noble lie. <laughs> it's been gone on since Plato. It's a myth. It's an untruth. But it's promulgated by the elite. It's promulgated by the government to maintain a social harmony or to advance an agenda. The noble lie is attempt to create an agenda to advance a political objective. The noble lie promoted by the government will be presenting itself as a perceived good. And they'll justify the lie because of the good that it will achieve. And when 30% of the population buy into the noble lie, then it becomes the dominant uh, narrative of that culture. Politicians, scientists, bureaucrats, media, they'll all repeat the noble lie. And what happens then is mass formation psychosis. Now, there are four conditions that are necessary, though, for that to happen within a culture. And you might say, why didn't it happen in America? And maybe it's because these conditions won't happen because of kind of the American experiment. But the first condition that must happen within the human person first within that society is that the individual struggles with a connection to society. They feel disconnected from community, from family, from church. They feel disconnected from team. They feel like they're alone in a rather dark situation. And that feeling alone makes them very susceptible to falling into this mass psychosis, this mass formation psychosis. That's the first condition. The second condition is that an individual in this culture, they feel a lack of purpose. They feel like they're a cog in the wheel that they make no difference. They're very unsatisfied with their professional life. And because of that lack of sense of purposefulness and dissatisfaction, they're vulnerable as well. The third condition would be that uh, the culture or the circumstances of the, the time leads to the individual feeling a tremendous level of anxiety. Kind of, a, it sounds like a, we've had anxiety over like a pending project or a, a current family situation. But the situation that might lead to uh, this psychosis is kind of a, a pending, this unknown perpetual anxiety that every day they wake up, they feel stressed about something. They don't know what causes the stress, but they feel a stress. And they struggle, struggle with that anxiety. So those are three conditions that the individual is experiencing. And then the fourth condition 
that leads to it would be the rise of a leader. Someone who can focus all of their pain, all of their anger, can focus all of their anxiety into a singular problem. And then they point and they focus on that problem and the leader dispatches a way to provide a remedy for that. Mass formation psychosis. Now, many people will take that formula and they will apply it to things like the Holocaust or Rwanda. And they will say that's kind of what happened within that time and within those people that led to that crazy genocides that you and I would sit here and think that could never happen. But there were conditions within the culture and within the human person that led to that. Now, I granted this is debated and some disagree with this completely, but I think it has some merit for consideration. We've got to look at the genocides of this 20th century and wonder, how could that come up? How could that happen? When essentially I believe people are good. But if they struggle with a sense of disconnection from others, if they feel like they're nothing more than a cog in the wheel, if they struggle with anxiety or for fear that they have no purpose, and then all of a sudden something rises up as, as the great solution, how easy it might be to, for them to feel attracted to that. Could that happen within the American experiment? I don't know. We're kind of blessed that we have fundamental freedoms that are protected. You know? What would happen if, if our government proposed some sort of crazy genocide or some sort of crazy discrimination against a group of people? Would we turn a blind eye? Or would we be like me, pray for the second coming? <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> I say, Lord, this is crazy. Come on down. We're ready for you. <laughs> but that's not what we're supposed to I mean, we can pray for the second coming, obviously, but we cannot turn a blind eye. See, so let me move into our second po the third point, that we are Christians in the world, okay? And so that there exists between us and the state a relationship that we have to acknowledge and honor, Okay. Obviously, Paul reminds us in Philippians that we are citizens ultimately of heaven, all right? And while we are citizens of heaven, though, and that's ultimately our home, we cannot deny the fact or ignore the fact that we have duties as citizens on earth, okay? Sometimes religion has been criticized because they focus too much maybe on the other world and less on the concern of their neighbor. But our Catholic social teaching has made it very clear that as much as we prepare for eternal life, we must be concerned about this life and the care of our brothers and sisters. So therefore, the church has always said a very strong yes to state and to state authority. Okay? The church has recognized that for people to flourish, it is necessary that state offers governance and laws for that flourishment. And so the, the church has always said a very strong yes to the state. Because all authority, all power, ultimately given to that state comes from God. And therefore, if we obey earthly authority, in part we're obeying the obedience of God. And scripture fulfills this as well. We have Jesus speaking about the authority to pay tax to the Roman authorities. He said that's right to do. 
Yeah, that crazy, uh, remember that story about Jesus pulling a, a coin out of the fish's mouth? It's the most bizarre <laughs> miracle of the Bible. But as you study it deeper, it really basically, Jesus is saying, look, the government that surrounds you is legitimate. Therefore, it's proper to pay tax to that le legitimate authority. So that's always been our position. We recognize that there we are immersed, surrounded by, and governed by a legitimate authority. But <laughs> we have also consistently taught that the state does not, the state, the government, does not contain the fullness of human hope, okay? It does not embrace the totality of the human experience. The state exists for the human person. The state exists for the human person, not the other way around. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate destiny, is that when Jesus Christ comes again, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so our ultimate hope, our ultimate trust, is not in what the state can do for us, okay? But recognizing that the state indeed provides something for productive living within our culture. This, this balance between yes to the state and no to the state reminds us sometimes that some people might get caught up in this idea that there's a political salvation. You know, like, you know, if we could all be libertarians, then we're saved. If we could all be Republicans, we're saved. If we could all be Democrats, we're saved. Well, no, the church would never say that, you know? None of that's possible. Our salvation is not in a religious party. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ. None of those religious parties will get us to heaven. None of those religious parties will get us to heaven. Now, now some might say some of those religious parties will get us to hell, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> All right? So as Catholics, we have this beautiful balance between yes to the state and no to the state. Okay? And I think that the balance is really... It's absolutely necessary, okay? We have allegiance to the state, yes, but ultimately our allegiance is to heaven. So states have a legitimacy to govern. And because they have a legitimacy to govern, they have a legitimacy to create laws. Let me take a moment to talk a little bit about just laws. As I mentioned, that all authority derives itself from God, ultimately. A state has the authority to act for the common good. Okay? And they have the authority to act in creating laws for the purpose of the common good. That means that their authority is legitimate when they advance that. A human law has a character in the sense that it is this human law that is just, it will be in right reason. It makes sense to us. A, a good law, a, a law will flow from natural law. Okay? So we have to understand a little bit about natural law as well as we understand the, church, the, um, civil, the civil authority's ability to make just laws. What happens when a ruler enacts unjust laws or takes measures that are contrary to the moral order or takes actions contrary to the natural law? Okay, That's what we're talking about. Now we get into the opportunity to discuss civil disobedience. It is possible... <laughs> History shows it, plenty of evidence, that a government can enact unjust laws. So what are we as citizens to do with that? Well, we have to always answer to our well-formed conscience. 
okay? God speaks to each one of us in our conscience. And so it's up to us individually to be sure that we're forming our conscience so we can hear the voice of God speak to us and inform us when we face a moral dilemma. A well-formed conscience requires, first and foremost, prayer. Always praying to be one with God, always seeking the will, the will of the Father over our own personal will. A well-formed conscience seeks the wisdom of the Holy Scriptures, Dwelling deeply on God's holy word, a well-formed conscience will align itself to the teaching of the church. So we're constantly working to form our conscience this way. And that's never a, you know, a one and done. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. So we as good citizens and good Christians are constantly forming our conscience so that when an unjust law is proposed, we have the awareness, the alertness to identify that. No, that is contrary to the common good. That's a violation of natural law. It's a violation of the dignity of the human person. And we can speak that because we speak from our conscience. So when evaluating you know, a government that proposes an unjust law, St. Augustine puts it even more poignantly. He says, an unjust law is no law at all. So an unjust law is no law at all. It, it can't achieve anything. So it can be simply dismissed as that. We can reject unjust laws. We can reject them even if they come from a legitimate authority. Because that unjust law, because of our well-formed conscience in union with the church, tells us that that unjust law does not hold up the dignity of the human person. It does not hold up the dignity of human life. And we must follow our conscience over the law. And there's plenty of evidences where we have seen that, you know. Early Christians were willing to face hungry lions and face pain at the chopping block rather than submit to the unjust laws of the Roman Empire in those early years of the church. We have seen throughout even the scriptures where Christians or people of goodwill, people of the Israelites, have disobeyed the civil law in order to pursue the common good. So back in Exodus 1, we hear about the midwives who defied Pharaoh's orders to kill the Israelite firstborn boys. They defied a legitimate authority's unjust law, and they saved the firstborn. And Moses would be a result of the violation of that law, which was unjust. We hear the story, we just heard it a few weeks ago, or just last week, I think. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They refuse to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that there's a higher law made, made to them that they must obey. Even in the New Testament, we hear Jesus will disregard the law when the woman is called in adultery. The law required stoning her, condemning her by death, by stoning her. But Jesus recognized her dignity and her worth and her redemption and recognized that he was bigger than the law. So there indeed, there are times when in good conscience, we recognize that we stand opposed to unjust laws. So civil disobedience is that ability for us to stand united. And I think standing united is most important here 
to a law that is unjust, that violates the dignity of the human person, or the dignity of life in general. We can refuse those laws because we remind ourselves that we must render to Caesar what is Caesar's and we render to God what is God's. For certainly, as Christians, our mission is to serve Christ in his church. Okay? We are to be his presence in the world. As good citizens, we don't take civil disobedience lightly. We will exhaust every means possible to try to bring right order, to bring justice to a policy that the government has imposed that is not just or is harmful to human dignity. We'll contact our Congress personnel, our congressmen or congresswomen. We'll, logo, we'll gravitate local efforts to try to oppose that law. We'll write articles. We'll, we'll offer vigils. We'll demonstrate. We'll march. We'll do all we can in order to make it known that we are standing united against this unjust law. But the church allows that there may be even occasion where we could offer disobedience because the law is such a disregard to the human dignity. Unjust laws are not just bad laws. Unjust laws are no laws at all. And in order to defend human rights in a peaceful way, the law is ultimately a form of defense and then a respect of the law at large. Uh, this is offered in the context of a lot of things happening, not just in America, but in the world regarding human freedom and human liberty and governments that are imposing restrictions on those liberties. Um, so I'm not sure, uh, Greg, or how much time you have or how you want to field questions. We've got plenty of time for questions. So if anybody has a question, go ahead and raise your hand. I'll bring the microphone around and you can ask to Father Mike. So... How do, I, how do I word this? Um, the last part of your brief, like I just felt anger welling up in me thinking about the time when the churches were closed because of COVID stuff. So there have been times when the church has stood up against the state um, so you have Walmarts open, you have the big supermarkets, and yet we were denied life-giving hope, life -gi literally the most essential thing. So without placing blame on anybody, and I'm sure you've gotten this question before, one-on-ones and whatever, um, so I hope that was worded respectfully. Yeah. No, that's, that's very yeah. <laughs> but how would, you, how would you respond to that? Because I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought that sitting here. Um, mm -hmm. How many thought that sitting here? You thought of the church closings? Yeah. yeah. I would say that, that in that situation, uh, you had well-intended bishops, men trying to discern how best to negotiate the situation. Um, and that's the decision they made. Uh, and, and, and I can only say speaking, to, I have very low contact with bishops. <laughs> I just a parish priest, <laughs> but I, I do know that there's a sentiment out there that among many of them that they made the wrong call. That that's not a call they'd make a second time. But that's that's kind of you know in the moment you have to make an address. I do think also you know like <clears throat> in the World War II, uh, the, uh, Pius XII was given some criticism because of he never officially publicly made a condemnation against Nazism in the concentration camps. Um, but nevertheless, if you look at the history, 
you know, uh, he was a great advocate for trying to advocate the freedom of the Jews and anyone persecuted by the, the Nazis. And the efforts they made in terms of freeing Jews is extraordinary, heroic. And there are times when I think it's a level of prudence, it's a level of wisdom that says, okay, wait a minute, I've a, we, we're working within an unjust government here. How can we advance the common good to the very best without being completely squelched? And maybe in World War II, that was a bit of the balance in which they were trying to achieve. The ability for Catholics to still be engaged in the culture in Germany and Poland and elsewhere to try to bring good, but by maintaining a little less than a, um, a militant opposition against Nazism, they allowed Catholics to be present. And in that presence, they were able to do more than had they made a, a, you know, a definitive, like, Nazism is bad, every Catholic should deny them and reject them. Maybe more evil would have come forth from it. It's a prudential decision. And um, sometimes, you know, we have to trust our churches in those moments. You know, there's so many factors that have to be weighed. You know, we, we always stand against evil, but how we do that in a particular situation, it may look very different. You want to respond to that? Um, I do, but no, I'm not, I want to respond to it by an affirmation. You keep saying you're just a parish priest, but we honor you and we thank you for your priesthood. And I believe if I'm correct, you're coming up on your 25th. Is that True. June twelfth. June fourteenth. June fourteenth. Okay. So we we honor you and we thank you and um, yes. Do not say you're just a parish priest again. I will ask you a tougher question. <laughs> As she passes the microphone yeah. to me. I don't want to. Be, I don't want to be anything other than a parish priest. Yeah. So I love it. <laughs> I got the best job in the world. No, Father. Strong affirmation. Um, in gratitude for you articulating a framework that we often lose sight of, that a truth is not something we can create, but someone in whom we're created, and you're, as a priest, are beautifully articulating a framework that ought to guide us beyond our feelings and our emotions, and that's a challenge sometimes, right? Whether it's this, any issue that you give a framework for, moral issues, contraception, sexuality, virus stuff, what are the attributes of the virtues that you would like to see us parishioners cultivate in, in addressing the truth so that we can adequately make the right yeah. judgments, and then help others, if sure. you will. Yeah, Greg, that's a great question. And I would say this, I, I think what what we're lacking and what's so essentially important is that we have to be have charitable discourse in our, we have to have free speech. It has to be charitable free speech. We've, you know, I'm con, I'm as concerned about the, the squelching of free, of free speech in some of our social mediums as I am in anything else. I mean, why ha has America been able to stand proudly to say we've never allowed a genocide such as a Holocaust or Rwanda to take place in our nation? Why is that possible? Because I believe it is the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion where Americans will stand up and say no and provide rational argumentation of why that proposed policy is an evil. And that only happens because of the freedom of speech and having, you know, the forum to do that. So I would say for us as, just as Christians, as people of goodwill, we've got to continue to be sure that the avenues of free speech are remaining open in America. And that's, I mean, I that's just my personal assessment. How could those genocides happen in places as they did? In part because free speech 
was squelched. If you spoke against Nazism, you were squelched, you were thrown in the concentration camp, as so many Catholics were. I mean, Catholic priests were in Dachau, 2,000, 2,500 Catholic priests were in Dachau. I just read a book on that recently. Why were they in Dachau? They weren't Jews. They were in Dachau because they spoke against Nazism and the genocide and the Holocaust. And so in a, in a place that does not allow free speech, where if what you say is in opposition to the government, the government shuts you down and imprisons you, we're in a bad place. But we're not there. We are a nation. We are a nation that has free speech and free religion. So we got to keep pursuing that. Mr. Welburn. I can speak without this. I agree, Father. Um, but we're in a very ticklish situation in this country. I would suggest that we are in the situations that you're talking about right now. A year ago, some people demonstrated and thought they were going to a party in West D.C., and as I understand it, there's about 120 of them still in prison without being charged. That's not America. And then we're talking about Holocaust and killing millions of people. I've said this many times. To be called a Nazi is really not a very wonderful statement to call somebody. But yeah, we're called Americans, and we've killed seven or eight times as many people as the Nazis have through abortion. And we have politicians who are good Catholics who support this stuff. And we have politicians in the state. And uh, I've always heard that we're only one vote away or one generation away or one person away from losing our liberties. And I wonder if we aren't closed in on that time frame because people have been afraid to speak up because it's not popular. I could lose my job. I could be imprisoned. You see where I'm coming from because I think most of us would agree to some of what I've just said. It's just a matter of how far do we go. And I think it's time for the church to be a leader and we are not to be just plain followers or sheep, but we should follow the leadership of the church. And I think they need to speak up loudly, fervently. We have a great bishop. We need to have a great pope and great cardinals and not play the political game. And I do think that during World War II, the pope had to play a political game to keep the Vatican free of Nazis. He didn't have a choice there. Yeah. And the Vatican had to play the game with him as well. I I don't want to divert from your question, Bill, but I would just propose, and I humbly propose it because it could be pushed back against, that you know, up until maybe in the last couple of years, I really think that our democracy, the American experiment, in light of the issue of abortion, you know, people of goodwill, Catholics and Christians, have kept that on the front burner because of our freedom of, of expression, our freedom of speech, our freedom to protest, you know, and we've done that peacefully. It is not a dead issue. And that's in part because, you know, we have these freedoms and we can express those freedoms with, without retribution. At least we have been able to do that. 
And so that's why I do think the American experiment is different than Germany during the Nazi regime. Um, and we just got to preserve that American experiment. It would be really extraordinary if all Christians were united in that message of the pro-life. I think we could have made huge advances. It could have been easily overturned, but we're not. I mean, we're, we're broken people and we have division on that and we have Catholic politicians who are not with us, unfortunately, but... Father Mike, um, what is a soldier's responsibility in regards to uh, fighting in an unjust war? So the uh, Nazi soldier yeah. uh. who is just following orders, what is his responsibility to, uh, to those orders or f yeah. fighting that unjust war? Jeez. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, that that's every soldier's nightmare, to be enlisted into an unjust war. And I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I could blibbly say, "Oh, you'd stand against it," but no, it's it's every soldier's nightmare to be enlisted into an unjust war. Well, you know it's unjust. You know that this is a atrocity. Well, off of that, um, the bishops made the decision to close the churches. So what is the parish? And do they have a vow to obey the bishops? But if they thought that was unjust what is what is their role in that it's you know like the soldier in the unjust war and the parish priest not just the parish yeah. priest <laughs> i think in catholicism we do have that principle of subsidiarity so at the most local level you know a, a decision can be made and and i honestly believe that at a local level had i at holy trinity um said to my bishop no bishop i really think we need to have masses we'll do all that we need to give for safety um i think he would have listened to that argument because at the at the level of subsidiarity, the best decisions are made locally, not at a hierarchical level. So that's a Catholic principle that I, as a pastor, could have made or any other pastor. I'm not sure how our bishop would have responded, but we would have had that opportunity to do that had we had we had that foresight and, and had we not. I mean, just so many circumstances were unfolding at that time that um, it just it was a difficult situation. Were you at a point where you were going to? see that this was wrong you think or other priests i'm you know i, I mean i was for uh, quite a while <laughs> i was i was in afghanistan so i <laughs> that's true i was i would deployed so i i i inflicted that upon some substitute pastor which was unfair to him and unfair to my people Deacon. yeah father mike uh you know, I kind of disagree with you that we still have the He's freedom of speech. always disagreed with me. <laughs> um, no, I always followed you. Anyway, because um, the national narrative is controlled by like two or three organizations, and they have a certain they have a certain way of thinking, and um, and they can suppress anything. So, Dr. Malone, who you mentioned, who invented the RMNA vaccine, who said it should not be given to anyone under 35 and only as a last resort for anybody over 35. Even though he invented it, he was immediately taken off of Wikipedia as the inventor, et cetera, and he was never heard from. Same with Dr. McCullough, et cetera. And so if, it's, if it goes against the power of Google and Twitter, et cetera, they're really controlling our speech these days. And so that led to tremendous damage. Like the schools should never have been closed because those kids had really no chance of, of 
you know, rare chance of having COVID. And, and I think the first year, like something like 16 children under the age of 18 died. I mean, it was just ridiculous what happened and the damage that caused the teenage girls, the whole thing. So yes, yeah. I, I, I think we're losing our, our rights of free speech. Uh, I think there's there's certainly a level of that. I mean, the, the social media has a huge platform that they are controlling the messaging. But a deacon, that is my, was my deacon down at St. Thomas More with me for, what, three years, four years, five years? Uh, it seemed like it was a lot longer. <laughs> 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 but the fact, the, the, I would push back a little bit on that. Is Yes, there are forces out there pushing a narrative and not allowing other voices to be heard. There is no question about that, we all know that. But the fact that you spoke that tonight in this space without retribution, and we just gotta make, take advantage of that. We still have the exercise of free speech. We just gotta take advantage of it and make sure that we press ourselves into those arenas that don't wanna hear us. It seems like the current situation in Ukraine fits some of the criteria that you've just described with innocent people being killed. I guess I'm looking for your take on that and also, as a follow-up, what can we do here thousands of miles away as, a, as part of our faith to help that situation? Yeah. Yeah, without question. And we see the photos of it. War is hell. And the Ukrainians are suffering the hell of war. When you see the images, at least projected via media, of what's happening over there. So we obviously, we pray for them. We pray for peace that... that the Holy Spirit may guide those leaders to try to find an avenue of peace and some sort of resolve there. Um, the quicker we find resolve, the better it will be. Um, that's my per personal position, and anything American can do to find to get people to the negotiating table to find a peace of resolve, the better. I don't believe amping up the war is a benefit to the Ukrainians at all. I think. I mean, this I'm speaking very personally here. I think trying to get them to a table for negotiation of peace is the best thing we could do. We are a force in, a, in the world, and I think we could use that force to try to advance peace more quickly versus the the amping up of war. Yeah, Ukraine's a, a you know, sovereign state. They have a right to be a sovereign state. Um, Russia to invade them was an unjust action. But as I say that, I know there's a history there that's very complex. And that complexity of that history, it can't be ignored either in trying to understand how to find a remedy out of it. Father Mike, we, we appreciate everything you said, but I, I'm not sure you've really talked about civil disobedience. Could you give us some examples of appropriate civil disobedience? That would be a great, great way to end this. <laughs> I chose to avoid it. <laughs> it's really particular to the situation that you're in. I mean... I can think of the civil disobedience that took place maybe like in the Nazi concentration camps. So, I, again, I was reading a book on Dachau, and they had about 2,500 Catholic priests there. And uh, it was illegal to offer the Holy Sacrifice to the Mass. I mean, a little complicated because there were like the Poles could do it in their cat in their in their quarters, but non-Poles couldn't do it. So it's a little – it's not – clearly back away, but most of the time they could not offer the Holy Sacrifice, nor could they minister to the infirmed. So they broke the law and they did it undercover. They would have undercover masses. 
you know, and they would tell the, the, the situation that they're out in somehow a garden situation and the Catholic priest would be among all the other prisoners and he would be permitted to kind of stoop down low among all the weeds and he would pray the mass in the weeds over the, the bread and wine and consecrate it. And as he was doing that, they would be throwing weeds around him to make it look like he was working and then he would come up and he had the blessed sacrament and he quietly would distribute the sacrament to those. That's, a, that's an act of civil disobedience. He's breaking the law. But he's doing it, you know, for the good of the others. Uh, so there are clearly examples of civil disobedience. Certainly in Rome, there are times when, um, in terms of trying to uh, free the Jews who were uh, potentially going to be entrapped or captured for the concentration camps and freeing them and giving them liberty, they did unjust or unlegal, illegal means to make that happen. So I think when you say what are the what are examples of it? You got to look to a particular situation to find what those examples are. Some of you remember Operation Rescue, 1990 or so. Randall Terry, um, you say car salesman, we're in the right place. Um, he was very convicted that if it's if we're really killing children, why aren't we acting like it? And he really posed sort sort of questions that are good Catholic principles of if you woke up or were looking out the front bay window having your coffee and you saw four year olds playing and a van pulled up and guys came out with clubs, would you write a letter to the politicians? Would you, you know, go on a march or would you immediately respond to the direct threat of a human life? Now, for me, I was graduating, had graduated from Miami of Ohio and was at the group of collegians throughout the state, very convicted that peaceful is the guide, but the principles of Martin Luther King in 1963, a letter from Birmingham prison, was speaking to clergy who were very much down on nonviolent um, demonstrations. And uh, it, it's so motivated, and I, I have to say, just register that I'm saddened somewhat that it has dissipated because there are many modes in the front. Not everybody's called to that, but I, I did get arrested, and I didn't blame those who didn't. But I, I was so convicted that if truly that that if we if we believe that this is killing unborn children, the killing of unborn children is no different than a four year old, ten year old, fifteen year old. Why aren't we acting like it? It does communicate to the world around us a level of magnitude of our conviction in that life, and it to me somewhat harkens with the Catholic idea from Irenaeus that the seed of the the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. So I I. I as a father of six now, seven, one in heaven, um, I am challenged always before God, am I doing everything? And I do mean within the principles of self-sacrifice, peace, and all of that. And I do lament that some of that is still missing. And I do admire those, Lila Rose, and those who will take risks to try to expose things and break the law are some clear examples to try to expose some of the horrors of things taking place there. But uh, I'll just say, for one, I, I, I am... I don't think I've done necessarily, I don't, I don't think any of us can stand before God and say, I've done everything. Am I willing to do all that God asks to live in the truth of what's happening here and putting myself in the right place? And I'm just uneasy with that, and I'm okay with that. Like, I got to struggle with that. But I, I maybe I wish that more of us, I sense leaders, were struggling with that that would communicate to the world around us that this is a gravity that merits a response. It is graver than Khmer Rouge and Rwanda and Nazi Germany and, uh, you know, all those combined. So no answer is just more of a testimonial and a comment. I, w I would say to some degree that, that that's where the individual conscience speaks to the person. And in the individual conscience of the person, if they really feel their life circumstances um, 
and God speaks to them to to make a statement for life in a way that's illegal that could lead to their arrest. Well, if God spoke to them in that directive, they should follow their conscience. And we would not judge them for the choice they made according to their conscience. Nor do we judge the person, the Catholic or the Christian, who God has spoke to their conscience. And in that conversation, they found that that creating following legal means to stand in opposition to abortion is effective as well. And so I think that the, it can be a both and, and I don't think we need to stand in judgment for either of our brothers or sisters who go an illegal route to stand for a principle that is just. Okay, nor should we judge someone who stands for the principle that is just in a legal way of opposition. Yes, it, it was an honor for me to be with Father Mike. <laughs> Seriously, I could not have asked for a better priest to start my career off with. And the thing about Father Mike that is unique to many, many priests is he was not afraid to preach on the gospel. So. You've been listening to Ignite Radio Live, a very special program featuring Father Mike Dandron at our recent Belief and Beverages Night. If you want to hear that program or other outstanding programs, go to IgniteRadioLive.com. Please join us in the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. And we do invite you to please partner with us. Click on that partner tab. Find out about how God is uh, really calling us to build up marriage and family, which is truly the foundation, the cornerstone of civilization. That's what we're all about. So find out more again at ilovemyfamily.us. Click on the partner tab. Until next time, God bless you. 